0: Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. While Alva's still on holiday, Stephen and I discuss obesity and the government's new strategy to try and help us lose weight. You ask us, will London survive coronavirus? And you ask us another question, would the Scottish government's coronavirus strategy be different if it had full fiscal autonomy from the UK? So we're starting the week with the news that buy one get one free deals on unhealthy food are going to be banned as part of the government's new bid to tackle obesity. And there'll also be restrictions on on where foods high in fat and sugar can be promoted. And there'll be new rules for displaying calories on such foods and such menus and a ban on junk food adverts after 9 p.m. So, Stephen, Boris Johnson has actually done a, a sort of promotional video for this new public health campaign where he's out walking his dog and explaining about how he struggles with his weight and how overweight he was when he was actually in hospital with coronavirus. And we know from early studies that obesity can have an effect on how hard COVID-19 can hit you. Stephen, why why is he doing this campaign, do you think?
2: I mean, I, I think it genuinely is a, like what you see on the tin. Like, mm. this actually is one of the more consistent through lines in his politics, right? You know, in his Telegraph columns, in his statements is like a kind of well actually I was about to say is a kind of you can't tell me what to do and then I kind of wasn't sure if I actually thought that was true but I think it is true it is true to say that he's definitely quite skeptical of these policy interventions in general but clearly his near-death experience has changed his experience right because like fundamentally the group of people whom this policy agenda is popular with are most voters the group of people who this policy agenda is unpopular with are Tory MPs right I think like anyone who puts, yeah who basically before an election goes, no, 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 we're not going to do those things. And then after an election goes, yes, actually, I've changed my mind. We are. Their change of mind is sincere unless they, you know, have like some weird masochistic kink for being unpopular. And I think, if anything, Boris Johnson's problem is quite the reverse. So, yeah, I, I think it is just a like this, you know, does what it says on the tin. And I think it's basically a broadly positive set of policies. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think there was a lot of mockery online for his video, but I do think that there was a sincerity there. And I think that when you, like you say, you know, he's not going to make... Many friends among sort of Tories who he sort of relies on the support of for policies like these, and so you kind of have to give credit for sincerity when it's due. And also, these kind of public health campaigns do work, you know. And then leading leading by example is a good way of trying to signal your approach and to to kind of live the policy, if you like. So I, I do think that that can be useful, particularly, you know, if we're facing more and more waves of COVID nineteen. The government has kind of been saying all along that. They want people to try and stay as healthy as possible. That daily exercise policy, they were always talked about it in, in a way that wasn't like, if you have to go out once a day to have exercise, then only do it for an hour or near your house. They would always say it's important that people go out and do this this outdoor exercise because it's important that people stay healthy. So this is kind of part of that, that kind of messaging as well. So I do think that that video was probably quite effective. Where I think this kind of becomes a bit complicated is where... You kind of have to do a lot of thinking about whether Boris Johnson really, because he's written up as this sort of libertarian who's had this great epiphany because he's been in hospital and had to reckon with his own health and, and his own own morbidity. But actually, I don't know if it's necessarily fair to think, of, think that he's always had a libertarian streak, because I don't think that's been the flavour particularly of his mayoralty or of his prime ministership so far. I mean, I know the Treasury, I remember speaking to people in the Treasury who were scared that he was going to undo the sort of sugar tax policies that they'd been that they'd been working on and had implemented. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. I I I don't know if Boris Johnson really is the libertarian that he's written up to be.
2: That was the thing I kind of stumbled over earlier, because I started going, you know, he's always been an instinctive libertarian, and libertarian. And then I kind of think like, well, Discuss with reference to the water cannon he bought, or discuss with reference to how many, you know, how he had a long bid to like make it easier for people, people to be stopped and searched. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure next time I forget that I actually can't like go too far from my flat wearing a hoodie. I'll be sure to have a conversation with the police officer about Boris Johnson's instinctive liberalism. <laughs> and and so that was why I kind of struggled with it. And then and of course, you know, like what was his kind of like inaugural public policy sort of change when he came in as mayor of London, it was to ban alcohol on the tube. Um, now, mm. you know, I personally am actually pro the alcohol on the tube ban. I think it has improved being on the tube late at night. Now, I'm aware I say that with, like, a very, very jaundiced eye in the when I was on the tube late at night with people who were drinking before Boris Johnson, I was, like, coming home from, like, various part-time jobs. And now when I'm coming home on the tube late at night, I am, you know, myself you know a couple of sheets to the wind so so maybe actually my impression that, that has been a positive public policy change is solely about changes in my own life circumstances but I think it has been a positive change but it is as you say very hard to reconcile with this he's an instinctive liber- libertarian thesis isn't it like it it just mm. does kind of fall apart
0: yeah and I think I think it is easy I know it's a bit of a cliche but it's easier to look at Boris Johnson's politics through the lens of what's popular or what's zeitgeisty rather than a specific sort of ideological stance or a specific approach to every policy area, because he he does veer wildly. I mean, you mentioned all of those policies that he implemented in London and also his rhetoric, of course, is very different sometimes from what he actually pursues. Um, but I do think, you know, we've always seen pictures of Boris Johnson on his bike doing exercise. I know that that was mainly because of the Olympics and his time as mayor coincided with that. But I mean, he clearly doesn't have a problem with trying to set an example in terms of lifestyle and behavior. And it is compatible with with conservatism, because even that video that he's he's posted today about obesity, there is an emphasis on individual responsibility. You know, you can protect the NHS if you look after your weight, and if you eat healthier, and if you do a run, if you run in the mornings, and you start to feel better, you know, there's, there's an emphasis on individual responsibility there. And I haven't seen the latest polling for this kind of thing. But I imagine that that's, probably quite popular because often you get this polling about the the impact of obesity or smoking on the NHS and people do think that individuals ought to take responsibility for that and and their health is in their hands and the health of the NHS is sort of in their hands as well. Obviously that's very uncomfortable and, and we've done a lot of work with our data team looking at obesity levels in the population and of course you know socio-economic status really does feed into that. And you have to ask questions why. And that's also a policy choice too. You know, if you have certain sections of the population or certain communities that struggle with obesity, why is that? You know, there must be a problem with the health service. There must be a problem with public health messaging, if that's the case. But that's me being very left-wing. <laughs> well, so I think
2: I, I, so I agree with your sort of point about, you know, like sometimes anti-obesity strategies often feel like they're sort of like about looking at an output and going, oh, that's bad. Let's mm. biff that with some kind of tax well, I can't believe I just used the word Biff. clearly actually going to start to become Very Boris Very Johnson. Johnsonian. Um, but, yeah, you know, let's just hit that with a, a, a syntax of some kind or another. But I think I do disagree with you about seeing this primarily through the lens of his, like, undoubted appetite for popularity, simply because this is, like, to the extent that it's ever brave to implement a series of policies that have a strong evidence base. I mean, these are, with a couple of exceptions, and I'd like to talk about, this is... um. This is broadly the same policy levers that have been reached for, you know, by the Welsh government in, uh, I keep wanting to call it heavier weight, heavier Wales, which is quite literally the reverse of what the policy (laughs) paper aims for. It's healthier weight, healthier Wales, but I just, I can't do it. And uh, a healthier future, the Scottish government's strategy paper and policy roadmap on the same set of issues. But although it's never really brave to basically like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the same policies and have been set out in the policy papers of, uh, of my main political rivals, uh, devolved governments, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's hugely popular with the public. This is still nonetheless a, a policy agenda which does not have a warm home in the parliamentary party mm-hmm. and having foregone the kind of popular time to do it, right? Whereas I think, like, say, you know, the, the drinking ban was popular with, like, the people in the outer boroughs who hate inner London who yeah. were part of his re-elect and indeed his, his elect in 2008. I think like the, the thing I, I think is still weird about Boris, and the thing is kind of difficult, isn't there clearly are a couple of things that he does genuinely believe in. I do think that a drastic Brexit has become one of them. I think that is actually one of the few through lines throughout his career is a, is a desire to to degrade, destroy, and ultimately exit the project. And I think, interestingly, one of the other ones and I guess this is why I think it's often a misread. And uh, when I did talk to do the instinctive liberalism, right? Because it's not so much an instinctive liberalism; it's a you can't tell me what to do. Mm, Which, mm. although in some ways, if I was feeling like I was, yeah, if you asked me to like describe various political philosophies in as liberal phrase as possible, you can't tell me what to do would be one description of liberalism. But actually, you're a liberal if you think that you can't tell people in general what to do. Right. Whereas visibly, this government doesn't have a particular problem with telling other people what to do. It's just then he's decided that, yeah, you know, like, and ditto in his career, he doesn't have a particular problem with telling other people what to do. But he ha- has always objected to, like, these policies which would tell him what to do. Mm. The other exception is, you know, I think, like, you know, the thing that, you know, if, if someone kind of came and said, you know, like, you've got to say, like, one uncaveatedly good thing that you like about having Boris Johnson as opposed to, like, literally any other Conservative Prime Minister, let alone any any Prime Minister of a party you might actually vote for, I would always pick cycling, something that he is genuinely committed to, his long-time mm-hmm. transport advisor, Andrew Gilligan, is genuinely committed to, and despite the fact that I don't agree with those people on basically anything else. And that is the kind of this, like, weird thing is that, like, there are a set of policies that are clearly important to him, but there is no underpinning ideology.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair, definitely. I, I, I think that's true of him. That quest for popularity, which I understand what you're saying is questionable in this case, it, you, have to, you have to split it sometimes, and almost it's diametrically opposed between what those people in the parliamentary party want and what the public want. And I imagine that something like telling people to go on a, go for a run each morning could potentially be quite popular with a public that's, you know, on board with wearing masks for, for their health and for other people's health and on board with kind of being told what to do and on board with their neighbours being told what to do, who might be being lax or who might be being seen as irresponsible. You know, we're in a time where people are kind of hungry for rules, aren't we? So potentially that popularity clashes with what's popular in the Conservative Party. But as we've seen from lots of recent tensions between number 10 And Tory backbenchers, he seems to be putting that public public attitudes above parliamentary party attitudes, and I think that probably fits into that pattern. But like you say, there's no there's no underlying ideology, I don't think, behind it. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get twelve weeks for twelve pounds go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions.
0: Now's time for a section we like to call...
2: You Ask Us.
0: And this is a question thrown up by Stephen's very good piece in our summer triple issue, which is out now. Will London survive coronavirus? Why did you choose this subject, Stephen, other than being a a London evangelist?
2: Yeah, so... So the, the kind of, yeah, you know, to let people behind the curtain is our summer triple in all good stores, you know, don your mask, go and buy a copy, uh, <laughs> subscribe, et cetera, et cetera. But for the specials, which have a longer lead time, I prefer to kind of do a sort of reflexive piece about, you know, my myself. Yeah, you because know, I kind of think that the options are either in the politics column to do a kind of like, you know, like very beard stroking, wither the left, what now, <laughs> the West? kind of sort of like stick up the butt. Column, which you know, obviously some people enjoy that kind of thing, but but I I don't have the necessary qualities to carry that type of column off, or to kind of do something and is kind of more kind of timeless because it's sort of about your own kind of reflections on on politics. And obviously, you know, I am as as our listeners will be uh, painfully aware, um, you know, a yeah, born and bred Londoner like yourself, and uh, yeah, wow, literally, Alva goes away for a week, and we're like, right, let's just talk about the city. Sorry, the rest of the country, no, no, no. But, but I think it's really, really fascinating because the weirdness, I think at least, about being like a left-wing Londoner is you continually are writing about the reasons why it would be good for the economy to be less dependent, reliant upon the capital and for people who don't want to live here to have to live here. And one of the positives of, of the way we've had to change to live during this pandemic is you can start to see how that would be more... Possible. But at the same time, it is, I don't know if you have this experience, but it is almost, it it does also feel kind of quite emotionally painful, almost. And that was kind of one of the kind of dilemmas I wanted to capture this week was kind of like, my complicated feelings about the ways that the pandemic is changing London, which I think are societally beneficial, but I do also find them a bit frightening, would actually probably be the word.
0: Yeah, I think and I think that's true of doing journalism in this age as a left-wing journalist and as a Londoner as well, in general, because like you say, every policy that you write about pretty much, you know, has an implicit criticism of the way that London works or the way the country works and the lack of balance in, in our economy geographically works. You kind of feel almost apologetic for being a Londoner sometimes, particularly when you're going out reporting to different places and and people ask you where you're from after you've asked them a lot of nosy questions about their life. And you kind of apologetically sort of say, Oh, London. And they're like, well, I suppose you have lots of money there. So none of these issues matter. And you're like, well, that's not quite how it works, but you know, sorry, thanks for your time. And I've definitely had that experience quite a lot and had to think a lot about and question my own London centricity and also love of London during the time doing these kind of stories i'm so so london centric I used to think that the tube covered the whole country <laughs> <laughs> and that and that when we went on overground trains, it was just because we were in like more suburban London than action. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, mean, I I I mean, like, I think that's like a lot more people were finding the london centricity of this podcast annoying now I I, I would find that a lot more defensible if I someone who lived in mile end and like, I know <laughs> right and like had, like but like no offense anoush but like How much more suburban did you think there was to go from Acton?
0: I (laughs) know. And most of the tubes in Acton are overground anyway, so I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) But, yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, obviously you become more and more aware of the flaws with with the way that London is set up and everything that needs to change probably means a bit of a weakening of, of London or a change in the way that it works that you and I have grown up thinking is normal and loving. That is frightening. So what do you think are the main changes that will come about because of COVID?
2: My kind of one of my my new sort of one of my new favorite think tanks. I'm gonna say one of because if I say my new favorite think tank, the other think tanks will get upset. But one <laughs> of my new favorite think tanks is is Klez, the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, maybe it's Centre, yeah it's the Centre for Local Economic Strategies and I I I do think that that one of the positive things in terms of lots of the stuff that you know we kind of talk about wanting about you know more local economies and therefore hopefully you know less consumption in terms of transport costs you know I mean I think you know ultimately this this has been a great time for local high streets in in london boroughs a bad time for city centers and i think that change will cascade across the whole country i also do think ultimately like although i think office life will return in a form i think it will return for onboarding trainees meetings things you can't do person to person and there therefore will be a bit of a diffusing of talent across a wider group of places rather than all being concentrated i think there'll still be massive agglomeration benefits because people will want to be able to you know they'll, they'll basically want to be somewhere where they can when it's like we're having a big meeting we all need to be here they'll they'll want somewhere they can do that painlessly although this of course will be where things like high speed 2 will really come into their own because mm. you will if we do the sensible thing and do it all the way that will basically allow you if you If you work in any of what I think really we ought to be aiming to be our real hubs, so London, Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool, Cardiff, Edinburgh, then you will basically be able to commute in almost from anywhere while doing quite a lot of distance working. And I think then that will mean that people who don't want to be in London will be able to leave more easily. I also hope it will mean people who've wanted to be in London who've been forced out of it will be able to return but I think it will basically mean more flourishing local economies because Mm. um yeah assuming that we don't have a kind of very rapid turnaround on a vaccine or palliative treatments I just think then like that pattern of living people will become quite used to
0: yeah I think there's optimistic things in that aren't there because you write in your piece about the people who sort of pass through London because they feel you know they either feel forced that they have to come here to to work in the jobs that they they want to they want to work in and you know we know that london sort of sucks people out of the rest of the country to to come here at least temporarily and you'd hope that for them you know it might be easier if they would prefer to stay living where they were brought up or, or somewhere else where they feel is you know more to their tastes and they won't be complaining to you about how busy london is anymore but they will be able to contribute to their own local economy and also work for 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 companies that are perhaps you know remote from from where they're actually based but then you also have the other people who who perhaps are either priced out or don't feel like they can afford to come and work here in the first place hopefully that it will become easier for them because something that I hope you know and maybe it won't that comes out of this is if more and more people are working from home I do think that there's going to have to be better renters rights because some people who would much prefer to be working from home for all of the benefits that it brings can't because they live in households where there's not the working space to do so or there's too many housemates or they you know it's it's not not good conditions to be working in so i hope that a long term shift to working from home can bring a change to the unequal housing that's available for people and can make it slightly easier for for people in london particularly and we have another you ask us this time it's uh from Ruzi. thanks for writing in Ruzi. Would the Scottish government's Corona strategy be different if it had full fiscal autonomy from the UK
2: if you thought then our first you asked us in which we talked about what our favorite think tank was pointed headed you're really going to love the answer <laughs> because it depends on the the fiscal circumstances we're talking about if we're talking about a newly or freshly independent Scotland adrift on the current you know in the kind of very very difficult 10 15 20 years than, than than would happen immediately afterwards, right? When you know it would not be able to issue a fiat currency, it would have all of the difficulties than. Now, although it would have many assets than most developing economies do not have, not least huge soft power, you know, etc., etc. But you know, it, it would have all of the difficulties that countries which are unable to lend and issue their own currency without coming under extreme financial and market pressure have had with how they navigate lockdowns, right? Yeah, that that just would very sharply curtail their ability to respond. But I'm going to cheat and answer an actually slightly different question, which is, let's imagine that Scotland has not gone independent in 2014, but has been independent for a much longer period of time. It has gone through the painful period of adjustment, and it is a, a small trading nation in the European economic area, which, yeah, I think bluntly, you know, However you feel about the political trade-offs of you know, the Icelandic bridge, if you talk to anyone who seriously thought about the economics of being a small country in Europe, if you're not in the EEA, then you might as well not bother. Um, whether you're in it and you're in the full project or you're in it, but you're not in the full European project. You've, you've sort of got to do that, right? But so let's imagine that they are in that situation. Well, then mm. the big difference I think would probably not have been in when they went into lockdown, because I think it feels clear from the Sage minutes we do have that now you can argue that a more focused Prime Minister might have asked more probing questions. A Foreign Office which hadn't been, you know, had it, you know, been kind of kicked around quite so much after Brexit, you know, maybe the fact that there because there were people in the Foreign Office who were watching, you know, whose job was the China brief who were going, Okay, but but what they're saying about transmissibility does not does not track with the restrictions on movement they're having, right? So you can you can construct a case where where a more able Prime Minister would have locked down earlier. Mm. But I think actually in some ways that, that bit would be less important. The thing which is really important now is why are Scotland and Wales unlocking now in the way they're unlocking? Well, the answer is because the furlough is going to end in, well, it's, it's being weaned off from, from August with this moving of, of having to make a small contribution, which will cause shift at least to some part unemployment, and the complete ending of it in October kind of means, and it doesn't matter, if, you know, if you're Mark Drakeford and your Nicola Sturgeon I have deep concerns about speed of the lockdown being eased you've kind of got to live with it because you do not control the policy which is is so important to making and making the lockdown I mean I'm not saying it hasn't had massive social costs but they are as to nothing as what they would be if we did not have the furlough protecting incomes so I think it would mean that Scotland was genuinely unlocking slower as opposed to this kind of like thing that both the devolved governments are doing to kind of basically demonstrate that they're unhappy about this space so they're kind of unlocking slightly later even though they are not locking that unlocking that much later but that does I think reflect the very sincere concerns in both the Scottish and Welsh governments that the government in London has decided it can't then it both wants to fight the virus and boost the economy you can't do both and in the end you just end up tanking the economy and possibly with a second spike as well what do you think the difference would be?
0: Yeah, I think I think it's right that the speed with which they are unlocking, although it's been on a different timetable to England, is is more of yes, it's because it's following the, the path that the furlough scheme and its changes and its dilution and its eventual ending will will bring. But also because it's, it's trying to dif- differentiate from a Westminster strategy that has been unpopular and that has been seen to lock down too late and also to ease restrictions too early by the general public. So I think it is that was that's sort of more of a differentiation from Westminster than a show of real separation because of that furlough scheme. So I do think if they they had full fiscal autonomy from the UK and were doing their own way of trying to pay people through the crisis and having their own furlough scheme that's completely separate then they would be able to have more control over the, the timetable. Having said that, I don't know if I don't even know if they would have locked down earlier or or eased restrictions much later than they are or much slower than they are, because from looking at other countries in Europe, and that's really the only thing we can compare an independent Scotland to, they've been following each other, haven't they, because of the way that the virus spreads And the fact that Scotland has a border with England, no matter how it would work, if it if it was fully independent or or whatever this scenario in this question is suggesting, the virus would have spread there probably at quite a similar speed. And I think that the spread of the virus and and the scientific knowledge of that spread has been the thing that's kind of pushed most European governments into action. And we can see that that we can see that ripple effect in the time that it took each of the countries that were hit by one by one, like a domino effect to lock down and then to ease and now to lock down again, because they have these second waves and things. So I don't know whether or not, because of the the fact that this is a virus that is controlling the strategy, ultimately, I think that maybe Scotland's response would, would probably look quite similar in terms of locking down.
2: So one of the things I think is really interesting about the response to the coronavirus, right, is that essentially, right, the, the Australasian democracies um, of both left and right have handled this better than the European ones.
1: Mm. And they've
2: all handled it better than the United States. And I think that reflects, well, I think in the United States, that reflects the specific circumstances of executive dysfunction, just as in Brazil, I think that reflects the specific circumstances of executive dysfunction. Whereas I think it's sort of this, this becomes a kind of like thing where I'm going to go like, well, you know, so on the one hand, I think you can't fairly say that this was something distinct to our government. On the other hand, the thing you can say is distinct to our government is its deep seated reluctance to carry out a proper inquiry into what went wrong, which therefore means that even if you think as I do, then there was a problem of kind of like not so much scientific consensus, because there were lots of scientists, there are lots of British scientists going, hey, this seems like a bad idea. But like in terms of like, you know, what you might call the scientific establishment, you know, not least mm. the previous people in charge of SAGE have have deep seated concerns about how it's operating. But uh, although I instinctively think that any inquiry would, would exonerate the government in terms of what it, the advice it was given,
1: mm-hmm. where,
2: where I think you then can't exonerate the government is that they aren't even trying to find out what went wrong, which means that if there was another pandemic, you know, in two years time, which there could be, you know, I don't want to depress our listeners unduly, he said before depressing our listeners unduly, but we shouldn't forget, right, HIV AIDS probably crossed the species barrier in the 20s. We now know that BSE was almost certainly prevalent in human cattle sorry human cattle in cattle cattle cow cattle in in the in at least the 1970s potentially much much earlier before it became a major health threat here in the united kingdom in the late 80s and early 90s so the next one of these things is bubbling away and it is a massive failure to get to grips with what went wrong but as with you yeah i just in terms of the evidence we have so far which lawrence friedman has done a brilliant job of collating on the ns website it just doesn't feel like the argument then there is a case to be made, then, then it would have been that different in terms of that initial handling. I think the big question is, would there have been a proper inquiry that would be mm. useful for the next phase? Well, hopefully, because I think then you can't separate the failure to do that from the kind of allergy to transparency and accountability that this specific incarnation of the Conservative Party has.
0: Mm. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shakelian, and my colleague Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons.
1: Planning for your next trip?